Thank you, music team, for leading us so well in congregational singing. If you would, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans. We are still in the book of Romans. Have been for some time. Not sure. We'll see what the Lord does, but we may get done with it this year. We'll see. That'll be sad in a sense, though. We're in Romans 11 this morning. Romans 11, looking at verses 5 to 10, I've entitled the message, something straight from the text here, because these doctrines are so debated and abandoned in many places. I just thought I would quote straight from the text, the title of the sermon, the chosen obtained it, the rest were hardened. The chosen obtained it, the rest were hardened. Romans 11, verses 7 through 10, but I want to read starting in verse 5 to give you the context. The context is always important. He's continuing his argument here throughout the book of Romans, throughout 9 through 11, which is about Israel, and throughout chapter 11, which is about Israel's current state and future state. Romans 11, starting in verse 5, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, In this way then, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice has also come to be. But if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But the chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Here we have a weighty text of Scripture, much like we've already seen in Romans 8, 9, 10, even, and 11. Here, once again, he is returning and and reminding us of that theme, but returning to it as well, that he brought up in Romans chapter 9. These two doctrines, twin doctrines of election and reprobation, or predestination, and we might say letting sinners go their own way. These are two doctrines that are weighty. They are difficult sometimes to comprehend, difficult to accept. Usually is is more the case in the modern church. A lot of Christians and churches don't want to accept these teachings, don't want to hold to them. But yet here they are and they continue to come up in Scripture, which means that God wants us to know something about them. Other doctrines we don't know everything about. We don't know to the very smallest infinitesimal point about. And yet we love to learn those. Well, this is a doctrine that we don't have all the answers. We can't put it all together with man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And yet God continues to put this doctrine in Scripture. That he is fully sovereign. And the other doctrine, which is man is fully responsible for his own sin. And we see this come up in Romans. We see this come up in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis. We see this all the way through to the book of Revelation when it talks about the names written down in the book of life. Paul comes back to it because it's an important discussion. He needs to bring it up because he's talking about Israel. In fact, that's what chapter 9 is. Often, as more Calvinistic or Reformed folks, we like to talk about election and predestination in general. And that's, that's true. God chooses whom he will save. But the interesting thing is Romans 9, the biggest chapter on that in the Bible, is actually about Israel first and foremost. He's discussing Israel. He's he's given reasons why Israel 
isn't all saved. And the same here with chapter 11. Now these doctrines, again, apply to Gentiles that are saved as well and Gentiles that are not saved. And yet, the discussion that's the clearest in Scripture on these issues is pertaining to Israel. Because that's the big question. What about Israel? God, what have you done with Israel? It can't just be that they've rejected God. That was chapter 10 in Romans, of course. But God, are, are you in control of their rejection? I mean, are you overseeing everything that happens in this universe or not? And, and if it is their responsibility, which it is, of course, they rejected the gospel of Christ. If that's the case, how can God make sure that all comes to good in the end? This gets back to his sovereign control of all things. Paul brought up this issue specifically, starting back in verse 1 of chapter 11. I say, then has God rejected his people? And we looked at this last week. The question is, has Israel been rejected? Have, have they no longer in existence? Have they been replaced? Are they gone? Paul says, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so we saw there where Paul is making the case that the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, Jews by ethnicity, physical descendants of Abraham, as he shows that he is one right there in verse 1, they have not been rejected. They've not been rejected in the sense of God still has a plan for them to all be saved, which is where this chapter is going, by the time Christ comes back. But for this present time, there are many who have rejected Christ in Paul's day and today. And so he's going to answer that question. Why then, if God has not rejected the nation as a whole, because it's the only nation that God chose to elect, then why have some rejected their Messiah? And Paul, first of all, starts off answering that question. He says, look, God has not rejected his people. There is a remnant. Some have believed. There's a present remnant. And he cites the Old Testament. He cites the case of Elijah. Elijah thought he was the only one left. Turns out there were 7,000 people. Not that we're still faithful. That's the case, sure. But that God left for himself. You see in verse 4, I have left for myself 7,000 men. God has chosen a remnant. He has made sure that those 7,000 are still there. Quit complaining, Elijah. You're not the only one left. You're not the only faithful person in the Old Testament. God has saved a remnant. And that's why in verse 5, he says, In this way then, at the present time. He's not answering yet what's happening in the future with Israel. That will come later in the chapter. He's answering at the present time. Here's the explanation at the present time. God has a remnant. Even today, God has a remnant a very small percentage. If you look at the statistics even of the nation of Israel today as it exists, you'll see a very small amount of Christians who are of Jewish heritage claiming to be Christian. And yet, Paul says, there is a remnant. And that remnant is a pledge. It's a promise of what is to come in the future. But now what he says in verse 7 through 10, verses 7 through 10 is that there's the rest. There's the remnant, but what about the others? And he's going to show us here that this is not outside of God's control. It's not outside of God's sovereignty. The majority who have rejected their Messiah is not somehow an option that mankind has chosen and gone off track from God's eternal plans. So what Paul wants to show us here is three truths concerning Israel's current status. Again, we're looking at Israel's current status. We cannot project from the current to the future. We'll get to the future. Right now, three truths concerning Israel's current status. And he sums these all up in verse 7 
opens up the last one and the remaining verses of this passage. First of all, the first truth, the futile search of Israel. And the first part of verse 7, 7a, if we want to break down verse 7 into parts, the first part speaks of the futile search that Israel is going about. Most of ethnic Israel, most of the national Israel does not believe in the Messiah. They're continuing to look for the righteousness of God somewhere else. They know the Bible calls them to be righteous. They know no one can be saved without the righteousness of God, but they're looking for it in their own way. They're looking to earn their own salvation. They're looking for a different way of salvation that's not through Christ. This is what he is saying here in the beginning of verse 7. He starts off with the question, what then? What then? That's the way of Paul asking, what should we make of all that's been said so far? All that's been said since Romans 9.1, when he started this. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He talks about his love for Israel. And verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And he goes on to talk about God's sovereignty, talks about man's responsibility. What shall we make of all of this, especially what he's just said in Romans 11, 2 to 6, that there's a remnant? Okay, what does this mean? What does this mean that there's only very few right now who believe? So Paul's going to sum it up for us. This is his question to sum it up with the answer here. And the first part of his answer is, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. What Israel is looking for, what they're searching out, they haven't actually found it as a whole, as a nation, as a people. The word for seek here means to be seriously interested in or have a strong desire for. Israel was very passionate. They're very zealous. Paul has already said that. They have a zealousness for God, but it's without knowledge. It's without knowledge of the true gospel They're looking and they're looking. They want to find the righteousness of God. And where they're looking is in themselves. They're saying, we have the the law. We have the Bible. Sort of like the, the American today who says, you know, I've got the Bible here. I've got one on my shelf. I've got one in my car. I've got one on my phone. That's all I need. I've got the Bible and I've got my own good works. And I know I'm going to heaven. For the Jew, they would have been raised this way. They would have been taught this way. They would have been reinforced in their mind, this type of thinking, this type of salvation, they thought. They're seeking, but they did not find it, Paul says. They weren't looking in the right place, so they didn't find it. Look at verse 30 of chapter 9. They turn to themselves. This is that new section he starts in 930 talking about their own responsibility for denying the Messiah. Romans 930. What shall we say then? Again, another question to bring about a summary statement. What do we say about all this? Well, here's what he says. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament back then. They didn't have the law of God. They didn't know anything about the one true God. And yet the gospel comes to their city and all these people believe. They obtained righteousness because they had faith in Christ. Verse 31, but Israel, ethnic Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness did not attain that law. They thought they could obey the law to get righteousness. They couldn't even do that because the law is not designed to do that. God didn't provide a plan B for salvation. It's not possible anyway to obey the law perfectly. But even if it was, that's not the method of salvation that God has decreed. 
It's through faith in Christ alone. Keep going there. Verse 32. Why? Why? Why did they not pursue righteousness? Why did they not find righteousness? They pursued it, but they didn't find it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Christ. They fell over the stone. And God said he was going to lay a stumbling stone in Zion, in Jerusalem, and it was going to be a rock of offense. It was going to offend them. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. He'll stand on the rock. But the Jew who is offended by the gospel will stumble over it to his doom. Now, skip forward to chapter 10, verse 3. He's also mentioned it there. For not knowing about the righteousness of God. They didn't know it. They thought they knew it. They thought they were Bible scholars. They had a PhD in Old Testament. And yet, like so many liberal theologians today, they did not understand the righteousness of God. And here's why. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They missed the true salvation because they were looking for their own way of salvation. And not only that, but they were working hard to attain it. And here's, here's the truth of the matter. Verse 4 of chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law points to Christ. You want righteousness? You go to Christ. You want to have the righteousness of God applied to your account so you don't suffer forever and ever in hell? Then you look to Christ because that's what the law was always pointing to. That's what they've missed. That's what they were seeking but did not obtain. They rejected the law, they rejected the true intent of the law. They thought they accepted the law, but what was the law all about? Paul keeps saying in Galatians and Romans, the law is pointing to Christ. Christ himself said that. The law, the prophets, and the writings pointed to me. He tells those disciples on the road to Emmaus, how could you not see that I was going to die and be raised again on the third day? The whole Old Testament points to that. So they were self-righteous. They had their own attempt at obeying the law to earn them a place in heaven. They made a fatal misstep. The law of God was never meant to be used that way. God took them out of Egypt. He redeemed them. He said, I've saved you. You're my people. They said, amen, Lord, we're your people. He gave them the law. They said, amen, Lord. And then they went and sacrificed and worshiped false idols. They turned away from God. And they said, you know what? We'll get back with God the way we want to. We will devise our own system by which to be saved. So by the time you get to Jesus and the apostles, that is what they believe. So the nation as a whole did not obtain the righteousness they sought for. Why? Because they missed it. They weren't trusting in the Messiah. The Messiah that was promised, they did not trust in him. They did not follow him. Faith is the only way to be justified. Sometimes you, you hear these things in their own cards that you can buy in Christian stores if there's still Christian bookstores around, and they're on coffee mugs, and it says, you know, if you're good and if you believe, all you need is those two things. You will be saved, is the idea. You will get to heaven. Our loved ones are in heaven because they believed in God and they tried as hard as they could. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says the opposite, doesn't it? Doesn't this verse and others we've already seen here in Romans say, it's not faith plus works. It's not mixing your good works and adding a little bit of God and faith in. And that mixture ends up getting you into this blissful paradise called heaven. Now that's what the Jews wanted, to establish their own righteousness. 
This is why legalism, even amongst Christians, cannot be tolerated. You can't mix in obedience to the law to try to earn your justification or even your sanctification. Yes, the Christian should follow the commands of God. They should. A Christian will. Not perfectly, but they will. We can't turn that around, though, and say to be saved, we must follow the law of God. So many, so many churches today are preaching the wrong gospel. They're preaching, be good, be kind, be loving, and then God will look at your good works. Go do social events, go do social justice, and then God will look upon you and say, your good outweighs your bad. You're a good person. In fact, we can summarize a lot of churches and big churches in this area right down to just be nice. Just be nice to others, and you are a Christian. I got to tell you, there's some things in Romans that don't sound very nice to the world. There's some things in the Bible that are offensive to the world. There are some things in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11 that are offensive to Christians who are actually regenerated. The Bible is not about just being nice. Neither is Christianity. It's not to say we should all go out and be mean to everybody. Of course not. That's ridiculous. But don't mistake Christianity with just being nice and kind to everybody. Of course we're to be kind to people. But that's not the gospel. Let's look, secondly, the second truth here. And really, this is just Paul's review of what he's already covered here in Romans. Secondly, the elected remnant of Israel. So Israel as a whole has not found it, but there is a remnant. They are the elect, the chosen. Romans 11.7 is a perfect summary of what Paul's taught up to this point. And so he brings out this fact. There is a remnant. He just mentioned this remnant. And he's summarizing the fact that God chose whom he will save out of the mass of Israel. All the Israelites who've ever existed up until this point. The ones who are believing, they are believing because of what God has done. What God has done in their heart and their life. Look at verse 7. What Israel is seeking and has not obtained, but the chosen obtained it. The chosen. That's God's word. We don't have to summarize what that is and invent a word like chosen or elected. It's right there in the Bible. The chosen obtained it. The chosen is the remnant that God has left over. From all the Jews, there's a small few that are believing. And you can see in the verse there, they have obtained this righteousness. This is the believing Israel. This is what, what Paul mentioned earlier. Go back to Romans 9, 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. There he's talking about believing Israel. Sometimes we say true Israel, spiritual Israel. That, that doesn't mean the rest of this section is just about believing Israel. No, it's about Israel as a whole. But there in verse 6, and again here in eleven seven, he's talking about those chosen by God who do believe. Why do they believe? Because they've been chosen by God. That's what election means. Why did they attain righteousness? Why did they have the righteousness of Christ applied to them? And we would say, well, because of faith. They, they believe, pastor. That's why, and that's true. But Paul goes one more step back. He says, the chosen. Why did they attain it? Ultimately, because those who make up this remnant were chosen by God. Not for anything they've done. Sometimes we hear chosen or elect, and we think, that, well, that's not fair. And that's saying some one group of people is better than another. And in America, certainly, we're all equal. 
I see nowhere in my Bible where election or chosen is based on anything we have done or will do or are doing right now. In fact, what's it based on? God's sovereign choice. God's sovereign grace. We see this over and over in Scripture. Paul, interestingly, isn't even choosing the word here that he's using. He's not choosing the normal word he uses here, the elect. But he's choosing an interesting word. The only time it's used here in the whole Bible, it's the election is how it should be translated. Not just the elect, which he uses other places. But it's the election obtained it. And to say the word election here rather than just elect stresses even more that God is the one who's doing the work. It's not just the elect that ended up believing. But it's the election emphasizing God is doing the work here. Romans 8.30. We love Romans 8.28. But don't forget to go all the way through 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Nobody's dropping out along this chain. Nobody's dropping out along the way. If God predestines somebody, and before that he foreloves or he chooses his electing love to be upon that person, then they are predestined. They will be called. They will be called in time in their life. They will be justified. They will be glorified. In other words, as Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the only reason there's a remnant of Israel, Paul's saying. It's not because Israel is so wonderful. We looked last week at some of those verses in Deuteronomy. Why did God choose Israel? It wasn't because they were so great. They were so holy. It wasn't because they were strong. It wasn't because they were the mightiest nation. It wasn't because God looked in the future down the corridors of time to see what they would do. In fact, if he did that, what would happen? He wouldn't have chosen them at all. We know it's not based on that. And God doesn't look forward in time. He knows all things. He decrees all things. He chose them. Because he's sovereign and he made promises to the forefathers. That's encouraging for Christians. I don't know why we should resist that kind of doctrine. That's encouraging. God made promises to Israel. He's going to keep those promises to Israel. God said he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. That's supposed to encourage the Christian, not discourage the Christian. God promised himself to the nation as a whole. But the point here in Romans 11 so far that Paul is making is... That not all Israel believes because God has chosen some and not chosen others. That's the clear teaching of this verse. Israel has always been made up of two subgroups to this point. And it will continue that way until right before Christ returns. Israel has always been made up of two subgroups. Believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. You find that in the Old Testament all the way through. You find that in the New Testament as the church gets going and most of them are Jews. So there's always been a remnant according to God's gracious and sovereign choice. One day, it says God will save all Israel. That's verse 25 and 26 of this chapter. We'll get there. But right now, he's working up to that point. He's saying right now in the current state. All right, let's go to the third truth here because it's the one we'll spend most of the time on. The hardened heart of Israel. The last part of verse 7 all the way through verse 10. So all Israel is searching for something. Most of them have not been saved. There is a remnant that's by God's choice. But there's also those that are hardened. The hardened heart of Israel. Paul says that's why they don't believe. 
is the third truth here that Paul will spend the majority of the rest of this paragraph on. He's already spoken of Israel's fruitless search for the righteousness in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, and starting all the way through 1021. He's taught on God's sovereign choice in 9.1 through 29. And now he gives us some new information here. New information about how Israel rejected Christ. And even that is not outside of his eternal plan. That's the whole point. He's not just reviewing election for us. He's adding something here. He's saying that this is not outside of God's plan. See, we often think, oh, God chose somebody. That's his plan. But everybody else, that's not his plan. And Paul says, no, it's all God's plan. We have to deal with that. And remember the attributes of God. And remember that he's holy and good and just. We can't just pick certain verses out of the Bible. I like these verses. I don't like these verses. Right? Do you know what happened in church history when, when that got going and became popular? Certain men like Marcion would take his Bible and just get some scissors and cut things out. And he started with verses, and then he cut whole books out. And by the time he was done, he cut the whole Old Testament and most of the New Testament out. Or Thomas Jefferson, who just took the moral teachings of Jesus and made his own little Thomas Jefferson Bible. They tried to bring it back into print a few years ago. Nobody bought it, so it's out of print again, thankfully. The moral teachings of Jesus. And we need the whole Bible. Everything. And Paul has been teaching us a lot of what's in the rest of the Bible here in Romans. And he's bringing up this issue, which is a hard doctrine sometimes for us, the hardened heart of Israel. Here's how he simply states it. And the rest were hardened. The, the chosen obtained it. That's the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. And the rest were hardened. Now Paul's going to back that up. But before we get there with the verses he backs up, let's look at what that means here. The rest were hardened. The rest, those who are not elect. Majority of Israel, the majority of Israel in Paul's day, majority of Israel today. They continue in their unbelieving way. Why? They were hardened. This is not the way we would describe it, right? I like what John Piper says here. He says, do we ever talk like this? How would we have written this? He says, we would have written, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The believers obtained it, but the rest refused to believe. And he goes on to say, and that would have been true. Absolutely true. And how easily Paul could have written just that. How easily he could have avoided the issue of God's election and hardening. Just like most people avoid it today. He doesn't avoid it. He's going further up or further back in time, you want to say, to God's choice. To God's election and God's hardening. What does this word hardening mean? Literally, it means to petrify, to become physically hard used in the ancient Greek language to describe hardening of two fractured bones together or the forming of a stone-like object in the body, a kidney stone, a gallstone, something that's really hard in the body, or bones healing together. That's the hardening. This isn't just a light little film on the body here. This is something that is hardened rock hard. Figuratively now, used in the New Testament, this word means to cause someone to have difficulty in understanding or comprehending, mostly dealing with the heart. Mostly dealing with the heart. Yes, this could be used for a callus, but don't think of it as just some tiny little blister. This is the idea of rock hard. In fact, I love that verse in, in the Old Testament. I think it's in the 
Somewhere in Deuteronomy, where he talks about their, their hearts were diamond hard. And the first time I heard that, somebody said that, maybe it was in a sermon, and I thought, that's not the case. I went and looked at the verse. Diamond hard. That's hard. Israel's heart was diamond hard. They were stubborn. They were resistant. But here, Paul is talking about God doing the hardening. Paul uses this very same word, 2 Corinthians 3.14. Speaking of Israel too, the Jews, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same bell remains unlifted because it is brought to an end in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. There's a veil, but he describes it as a hardening. They hear the gospel and they reject it. Why? It's the hope of eternal salvation. Paul says there's, there's a veil. Now we know Satan veils the truth. Satan veils the truth from coming to people. We know that the human heart itself hardens itself against God's ways. But here we're looking at what God has done. What God has done. For the elect, God removes the veil. He takes it away. They believe. For the rest, their heart is hardened. Those people who remain are hardened. The nation has a special status with God, a special chosen status with God as a nation, but not every individual will be saved. God chooses whom we will have compassion on. God chooses whom we will have mercy on. And then the rest have been hardened, Paul says. Now this is serious. Paul's not sitting here clapping and having a party over this. He's saying this is the truth of the matter. This is a fact. This is God's word. Most, he's saying, most of Israel is currently on the wide path that leads to destruction. Do you know when Jesus talks about the the narrow path and the wide path, the narrow gate and the wide gate? Why is it narrow? Because he says, few find it. Few get through it. Most are on the wide path. Why is it wide? Because there's so many people going down that road. It's wide. You look at the the parable of the soils. We looked at that in the last few weeks. Three out of four of the seed that goes on soil never does anything and ends up being representative of unbelievers. Only one. Now we're not to take that and think only 25% of the people who hear the gospel will be saved. But the idea is Jesus is preparing them. He's preparing them for what is to come when the gospel goes out. He is preparing them for people who will reject the gospel. Let's go back to the question here. Who's doing the hardening? Notice here that it's in the passive. It's even more emphatic in the Greek. It's passive. The rest were hardened. They did not harden themselves, even though that's true. If you read Romans 1, you read Romans 2. The human heart does harden itself against God. That's our natural tendency. We inherited sin from Adam. We have a a sin nature. We sin as soon as we can. We hardened our heart against the truth. We suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. That's true. But here he's focused on what God is doing. Look at verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor. This is God's judgment for their sin. How has God done this? You might wonder, how does God do this? Because God is perfect. He's holy. There's no unrighteousness in God. He's not creating evil. He's not making them sin. He's not creating sin. The closest answer we're going to get, we've already looked at in chapter 9, but let's go real quickly through that. 
9.13, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. This is God's holy hatred against sinners. This is not God sinfully hating. This is not God creating some kind of, of sinful hatred in himself. Not at all. We can only say here that God did not sinfully hate Esau, but rather rejected him from the promises that he had graciously given to Jacob. It's the opposite of election. He chose Jacob, not because Jacob was some wonderful guy. He was a scoundrel. God chose Jacob, keeping the promises to Abraham and Isaac. And he rejected Esau. Some call it reprobation. Others like the milder term non-election. Theologian Louis Burkhoff says, Reprobation may be defined as that eternal decree of God, whereby he has determined to pass some men by. That's the key there. If we're all sinners and we're all on the road to hell without God's grace, what does he actually have to do? Nothing. We're already going to hell. God doesn't force us to go to hell in the sense of making us sin. We're already sinners. Burkhoff continues, to pass some men by with the operation of a special grace and to punish them for their sins to the manifestation of his justice. What does it mean that God is hardening? Well, it means that he just lets people continue in their sin. And that's what they want to do. He's not forcing them against their will. That's actually what sinners want to do. They want to sin until they're regenerated, until they have a new heart, until God lifts the veil. 920, chapter 9, verse 20. On the contrary, so this is somebody who's wondering in verse 19, why does God still find fault? This is after he's talked about Pharaoh and how God said he would harden Pharaoh's heart. To raise up Pharaoh, to demonstrate God's power. Pharaoh was a sinner. Pharaoh loved his sin. But God said, I will harden his heart. It says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God hardens his heart back and forth in Exodus. Verse 19, Paul deals with the objection. Why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? Okay, God, I guess nobody has free choice. Forget about it. On the contrary, he says, verse 20, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? We're clay. We can't complain to God. Or did not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump, the same lump, sinful humanity, the same lump of sinful humanity, he takes and he makes some for his special use, honorable use. And he makes the other, just lets them go along their way because they're already sinful, dishonorable use. What if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? They're already going to destruction. But he takes some and he makes it for honorable use. He, he saves them. He puts his grace upon them. Not because of anything they've done. And now... He tells us in verse 23 what the ultimate purpose is. In order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. How does the hardening work? He lets them continue in their sin. Do they harden their own heart? Yes. Are they responsible for their own sin? Yes. The Bible says yes, yes, a thousand times. But that's not outside of God's sovereign control. Do you know nothing in this universe is outside of God's sovereign control? Otherwise, Romans 8.28 doesn't make any sense. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How can all things work together for good? Because that includes sinful things. That includes evil things. That includes what we call chaos. That includes tragic events in the world. 
How can God make that promise if he's not sovereign over it all? How can God say all Israel will be saved? How can God say I will choose a remnant and always have a remnant if he's not sovereign over all of it? How does he harden the rest of Israel? He does so by leaving them in their sin and unbelief. The sin that they have desired and lived out. Nobody gets an unfair trial before God. Sinners get justice. Believers get grace. But nobody gets injustice. Nobody. Unbelieving Israel chooses to unbelieve. And God lets them go their way. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo says, God's hardening permanently binds people in the sin that they have chosen for themselves. See, people talk about free will, but this idea of free will is not a good thing. Because look what free will leads you to. Continuing in your sin and getting hardened for that. Israel rejected the Messiah. But that's not outside of God's plan. God is sovereign over all things, and man is responsible for his own sin. Now, if you think this is shocking today, and it is to most people who hear it for the first time, it would have been shocking to the Jews of Paul's day as well. I mean, we're the chosen nation, they would have said. God doesn't harden our hearts. I mean, sure, people can fall into sin, and and they can go their own way and not obey the law. They harden themselves. But come on, Paul. Where are you coming up with this doctrine? I mean, come on, preacher. Is this in the Bible or what, Paul? Paul says, okay, I got three verses for you from the Old Testament. And there's three sections of the Old Testament that the Jews looked to. They divided their Bible into three ways. The law, first five books of Moses. The prophets, that's everything from Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, the, the older prophets, to the later prophets, which start with Isaiah. That's normally what we think of as the prophets. And then the writings. The writings, Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes. They also put Esther and Daniel in there and other books as well. Everything that doesn't fit in the Law and the Prophets went into the writings. Paul is now going to quote from each of those sections to prove his point. He is proving here that this is not something new. It was spoken of in the Old Testament. It's not something that should surprise you. Much like when we sometimes meet a well-meaning Christian who says, you know, election's not in the Bible. And you shouldn't, you know, blast off at them. You shouldn't treat them in a disrespectful way. Just go to the Bible. That's what Paul's doing here. He goes to the Bible and he shows verses from the Old Testament. So let's look at these. In these verses, we're going to see five descriptions. It's not on the screen, but I just want to list quickly five descriptions of the spiritual hardening. What does it look like? Paul's going to describe it from these Old Testament verses and prove that it exists. First of all, the spirit of stupor. Verse 8. He says, just as it is written. Now he's going to quote in verse 8 from Isaiah 29. And then Deuteronomy 29. So first of all, the spirit of stupor in Isaiah 29, 10. God gave them a spirit of stupor. We don't use the word stupor a lot today in English, but it means a state of of not being able to think satisfactorily because of complete bewilderment. You can think of the word stupid. This is similar to that. You can think of it, but it's not an insult here. It's saying that they're not able to think straight. Literally, the word meant too much sensation. They're getting so much sensation that it's dulled them. And they can no longer think. And much like your, your arm or your leg falls asleep. You've been sitting on a while, maybe on something hard. Your leg falls asleep. If you stay there too long and get up, right, the thing doesn't even work. You wonder if your nerve just got completely cut or something. That's the idea here. Tingling to the point of going to sleep. It feels paralyzed. They're like paralyzed people trying to walk around. Fumbling and bumbling over things. It's like they're drunk or drugged. 
In fact, right before Isaiah 29.10 is Isaiah 29.9. And here's what it says. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. Israel has been hardened and they're just walking around stumbling and they're bumbling. And they think this is a wonderful life. Everything is great. It's, it's, it feels so good. I'm, I'm working on my own salvation. And they're actually like a drunk man. They cannot think clearly. They stagger from, from one spiritual concept to the next. You've met Gentiles like this, right? They're just going from one false teaching to the next. Right? You're finally glad they got out of this false teaching. And now they're in this other false teaching. And so on. It's being tossed back and forth, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, by every wind of doctrine. Leon Morris, the commentator, says, Paul's not making excuses for those who reject God. He's bringing out the seriousness of their plight and the fact that God is at work in their punishment. They're staggering from one to the next. Secondly, the loss of spiritual awareness. So you have the spirit of stupor that God has given them. He's also given them a loss of spiritual awareness. Deuteronomy 29.4, eyes to see, eyes to see not. That's the best way to translate it. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not. They have eyes, they have ears, but they can't see and they can't hear in the spiritual sense. Their spiritual eyes and their ears do not work right. They can't discern truth from error. They're unable to see it. John 1.11, he came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Why? John 3.19, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. The, the unbeliever doesn't say, oh, I have a, a spirit of stupor and a loss of spiritual awareness. They say, I'm doing exactly what I want. And they are. But God's also hardening them, letting them continue in their sin. Jesus speaks of this. Go to Matthew 13. Paul's just picking up a doctrine that Jesus already taught. And most of the gospels here is this teaching. Jesus has been teaching on the parable of the soils. Many have rejected the gospel. So he taught the disciples on the parable of the soils. And in Matthew 13, 13, they ask him, why are you speaking in parables? Jesus, the disciples wonder, why are you talking to everybody in parables? They can't understand those. Now we think, oh, parables. Jesus is using illustrations, and he is. But look at the primary reason he gives, the first reason. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, so something very similar to what's said in Deuteronomy. By the way, in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to you, Israel. You're not going to be able to see. You're not going to be able to hear. Now, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he said, it's being fulfilled in his ministry. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Now he goes to talk to the disciples, but blessed are your eyes, because they see. And your ears, because they hear. 
For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What's happened? What's happened to the disciples? They've been born again. God has removed the veil. They've been born again to understand, and they can believe, and they can see, and they can hear. But the unbelieving Jews, Paul says, and this is All this applies to Gentiles as well, but he's focused on Israel, has a loss of spiritual awareness. And he says both of these, the the spirit of stupor that God gave him and the loss of spiritual awareness comes down to this very day, he says. It's ongoing. It's continual. It persists. One day, the Bible says, this will lift and God will save all Israel. But for right now, to this very day, Paul says, this hardening is still occurring. The third description here, blessings that become a snare. Well, this one is really challenging to us. It should wake us up. It should wake up any unbelievers in the room, anybody who watches or listens to this later. Look at verse 9. David says, Okay, you've heard from Isaiah, that's a prophet. You've heard from Deuteronomy, that comes from the law. Now from the writings, that's the Psalms and others. David says in Psalm 69, 22. Before we look at what David says, this is an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is when David curses his enemies. And the reason is not because of a personal vendetta. A lot of Christians don't like the imprecatory psalms. But what David is doing is he is the representative of God. He is the king over God's nation. And the reason people hate David is because they hate God. So they want to kill David and put up their own king or destroy the Israelites and so on. And so what David does is he prays to God that God would punish them. Much like when somebody commits a crime, an offensive crime, they abuse a child, they murder a bunch of people, we want justice to be done. Do we want people to be saved? Yes. Do we want justice to be done? Yes. It's not either or. Right? Whenever our loved one has to go to prison for life, do we pray for their salvation or we pray justice is done? Both. Both. Because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what God is doing. So that's an imprecatory psalm. Now, this psalm is interesting because it's used a lot. A lot of the passages from here are used in the New Testament to speak of the Messiah, meaning there's parts of the psalm that are messianic. Just go forward in Romans to chapter 15, and you'll see this. You know, Psalm 69 is used a lot in the New Testament. We don't have time to go through all of these, but there's one in the book we're in, Romans 15. And Paul uses it here in a messianic sense. He's not doing that in Romans 11, but he is in this passage in Romans 15, 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, you fell on me. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting from Psalm 69. That comes up in Acts. It comes up in other books of the New Testament. So back now to Romans 11 and verse 9. Here's what David says. Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. And a retribution to them. A table in ancient times is your big table. It's laid out with all of this food. It's got enough food to feed anybody. You can feed everybody who comes. You've got all these blessings of God. God's common grace. Paul, or, or David, sorry, looks out at his enemies. And he says they have all of this wealth. They have all these blessings, God. Turn it against them. Turn their table against them. And Paul picks this up too. The idea is the table is a a cup overflowing. It's abundantly provided for. It's God's providential common grace on all mankind. They have these wonderful things. But the table they thought was a blessing. 
they thought it would bring a peaceful life, actually causes them to stumble. The Jews have all these blessings. They have the Old Testament. They have the covenants with the fathers. They have the teaching on the Messiah. They sing the Psalms as their Psalter, as their hymn book. It's pointing to Christ. They think those are blessings, but it becomes a stumbling block to them. It's a description of being hardened. It's a snare. This table becomes a snare. It's supposed to be a blessing, but it becomes a snare. A snare suddenly and unexpectedly is bringing an animal under control by force. Usually there's a wire or a cord that wraps around its leg. A trap is a net or a trap that springs shut upon the victim. A stumbling block is in the trap. The animal goes into the trap. They stumble over something. It sets the trap off. Retribution means simply the punishment that is given in return for behavior. In this case, it's a negative thing, negative recompense. God is going to use the table of good things to their demise. We have to think about that. All these good things, and God is going to turn them against those who have rejected his son. The fourth description, a darkened mind. Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened to see not. Inwardly darkened. Before, we we saw that their eyes couldn't see, but now he's saying, let it be so. Let the enemies not have eyes that can be darkened, or eyes that can see. They're darkened inside. They don't understand. The same word darkened here is used for Gentiles in Romans 121. For even though they knew God, they knew God existed, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish heart was darkened. God let them continue on. And he gave them over and he gave them over. They turned away from him. They suppressed the truth. He gave them over. They got darkened. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Let's look at that. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. We have the same word being used here. And he's talking to Christians. He's saying, don't, don't live like pagans. You might have been Gentiles. You might have been a pagan, but now you're saved. Therefore, this I say, it testified in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. How do the Gentiles walk? Oh, they're just good people. You know, they're just out there being good people. No, Paul says in the futility of their mind. Everything they do doesn't have any end result to it. It, 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 They think they're doing something, but it's actually futility. They're being darkened in their mind. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. That's who you were. Don't walk like that, Paul says in Ephesians. He's describing this darkened mind that the unbeliever has. Fifthly, trembling and fear. It just, it really gets worse and worse as we go down here. The spirit of stupor, this idea that your blessings become a snare, their mind is now darkened, and now there's trembling and fear. It closes here, and bend their backs forever. Some think this is a reference to being in slavery, but it's not. It's, it's the idea that if you go to the original in Psalm 69, and you'll see the Hebrew there, speaks of trembling and fear. They're they're bending their backs because they're afraid. They're bending their backs like captives would have to do when they were captured and about to be killed, and they're begging for their life. Now, he's not saying here that they're begging for their life, but that's the idea. They're trembling in fear. What David prayed would happen to his enemies, which were the enemies of God, has happened to the Jews who rejected the gospel of Christ. They're trembling in fear. It may not seem like it, but they are. That is part of hardening. If they had to stand before God today, they would tremble. And in that sense, they're enemies of God, spiritually speaking. 
Let me give you some points of application as we conclude here. There's three things I want to remind you of. This is about Israel. Most of us are Gentiles. What does this mean for us as Christians today? First of all, let's remember this is not the end of the story for Israel. It's not the end of the story. The whole nation of Jews will be regenerated. They will. As we get to that in Romans 11, I'll wait to say more about that then. But this is the reality now. We can't take this and read it forward. We can't take this and say God has abandoned the nation. We can say that those who've rejected Christ and die in that, we know they're unbelievers. They have been hardened. This is the judgment of God, though. This ought to cause us to have some fear. This is the judgment of God on people who had the covenant through their father Abraham, and they have turned away from those promises that he would save them. Second application for us, second one. It's not our job to bring this judgment down upon Israel. It's not our job to be God and try to punish the Jews for killing Christ. The Romans killed Christ too. They were Gentiles. But beside that, what he's getting at here is, this is God's judgment upon Israel. There's no place for anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, many in church history have tried to exile Jews, extort Jews, persecute Jews, execute Jews, kick them out of the kingdoms. For 350 years, they were kicked out of England. And it wasn't until the Puritans took over England for a short period that they let the Jews come back. That's not to speak of all the horrific Holocaust type things that have happened in history. Not all done by Christians, of course, but there were many Christian governments who persecuted Jews. And they reason because the Bible says they're under God's judgment, we're going to put them under our judgment. No place for that with the Christian. The early church was made up of believing Jews. Paul is a believing Jew. Jesus was a Jew, is a Jew. When Jesus comes back, he still got a Jewish body. Number three, what they need to hear is the gospel. We're not seeking to punish the Jews. What they need to hear is the gospel. You might say, well, why? God's already hardened them. I mean, if this election stuff is true, who cares, right? You know, the greatest evangelist in the U.S., the greatest evangelist in the U.S., who was that? Whitfield. In the 1700s, he had crowds at the time of 30,000 people. There wasn't that many people in the American colonies then. He preached, you must be born again. He preached, have faith in Jesus Christ. He preached and preached and preached. The greatest evangelism, evangelist on American soil. He said, you have election and you have reprobation. And they're both taught in Scripture. The greatest missionary, the father of missionaries, the one who first started the movement, William Carey. They asked, why are you going to India? Why are you going to Burma? Why are you going over there? I mean, they're just going to kill you. And he says, because it says in my Bible that God has chosen out from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And there's some of God's chosen there, so I'm going. And he started the church. It's still named William Carey Baptist Church or something along those lines in India today. He started the modern mission movement. This teaching is no excuse for not evangelizing. You don't know who's been hardened. Some of those Jews will come to faith as time goes on. God knows who's hardened. Paul's saying that God knows and God is doing the hardening, but we don't know. Spurgeon said, we don't know who's elect. You just preach to everybody. The preacher preaches to everybody. The seed goes on all kinds of soils. God knows the type of soil. The seed goes out. The word goes out. God gives the increase. You don't know. 
Maybe it looks like it over time if somebody is just blaspheming God in your face and you're not to sit there and just continue to listen to that. You can, you can turn away and not cast your pearls before swine and turn away and go evangelize somebody else. But it's not your job to cast that person into hell. Your role is to take the gospel out, proclaim the truth of the gospel. Which ones are chosen by God to be saved? Which ones are to be left to their sin and perish? You don't know. Just sow the seed and let God do the work. You see, this teaching in the Bible, this teaching in the Bible doesn't say, well, we're just going to sit back and see what God does. You don't do that in other parts of your life. Right? When you pray to God, you say, God, save my unbelieving family member. You don't say, well, God, it's their free will. We'll let them be. No, we say, save my children. Save my unbelieving children. Save my unbelieving parents. Save my family members who don't believe in Christ. Because God is sovereign and can do it. So there's our application from this text. This ought to bring some fear into our hearts as we think about this hardening, as we think about God's judgment. There's a judgment to come, but there's a judgment already starting in this life. So if you're here today and you're, you're hearing this and you're worried that you might be hardened, look at this text. Think about what he's saying here and ultimately let it turn you to Christ. Let it turn you to the only one who can give you righteousness. Sitting back and worrying about who's elect and who's not is never going to get you saved. As for the believer, to then look back and learn what God has done for them. The unbelievers to turn to Christ. So let's pray that would happen. Oh Lord, may this sermon be used for your glory in whatever way you see fit. Let your word go out. We pray that unbelievers would hear it and believe in Christ because they cannot make up their own way of salvation. It only comes through our Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that believers are edified. They've, they've learned about your sovereignty, God. But most of all, we wanted to glorify you by proclaiming this truth, by preaching your word, by hearing your word, by rejoicing, and that you are good and righteous and just and gracious and merciful. We pray, Lord, that you would always love your church as we know you will and show us your grace. In our Savior's name, amen.